Thanks to our sponsor, Walker Digital, who have stepped in to help the Numbers Game podcast with their social media. Walker Digital are a digital marketing agency covering strategy, content, video, implementation, and education. The team at Walker have spread the word of our clients and love working with businesses doing good things helping them to grow and reach more people so they can scale and get larger. I know personally, the first thing I did when growing our business was to outsource social media, blogs, and copywriting because I knew it was something that was not the best use of my time. And the team at Walker Digital smashed it. Sometimes you need to walk before you can run. Find out more at their website, wlkr.digital. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. The conversations are of a general nature and do not qualify as financial or tax advice. We recommend before you make any financial decisions, you consult a licensed professional. Individuals on the podcast may hold positions in the companies discussed. Welcome to episode 34 of The Numbers Game. I'm Jason, as always, here with Nick and Marty. Guys, very exciting today. Got a special guest coming up later on. But before we get to that, how are you guys been? You doing all right? Going really well, thanks, Jason. We are out and about in Melbourne. Life is uh, pretty much back to normal, which is a good sign. But I'm excited for today's episode with our special guest because uh, we'll be learning about defending our businesses and also going on the attack as well. So I'm very, very excited. The big announcement coming up soon. Nick, how are you? I'm well, Marty. Busy, busy. It seems like we've got 12 months of um, social events crammed into the next month. So. Uh, it's a big run into the silly season, but looking forward to it. And yeah, really looking forward to the day, today's episode. Um, got a personal experience around um, trademarking. So yeah, look, looking forward to get into it. Joining us after reading the play will be Casey Hogan, who's my partner in crime, uh, married in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll be talking all things trademark. So I'm very excited. Let's play. My favourite segment, Reading the Play, where we bring you the interesting facts, the news that you need to know, and uh, interesting facts uh, to keep you up to date on everything that's happening. And uh, Nick, I'm interested in this one, because all I know about it is that it's F1s, and uh, that excites me. Some loud engines and uh, some revving and fuel. What have you got, Nick? That's awesome. Yes, well, F1s meaning Formula One, which is the race cars that race around the track at Albert Park um, once a year, and many other places, 20 other countries throughout the year and it may seem a little bit weird as to why we're bringing it to the numbers game but I read an article on uh, the weekend just talking about the money that's involved and something that's always fascinated me because I've never really been across it but when you look at what the drivers are paid I always think geez number one how does this uh, how do these teams make money and number two um, where does the money go to like you know you've got Lewis Hamilton, for example, for, who's the Mercedes number one driver, earns $100 million a year. Now, where's it coming from? How does he get 100 Is it all sponsors? Is it um, from mm-hmm. the Mercedes team? So the other reason I want to bring it up is because there's a, it's a show on Netflix at the moment, which is into its third series, I believe, or about to be into its third series called Drive to Survive. And it's significant not only for the fact that it's a brilliant show, and if anyone haven't wa- hasn't watched Drive to Survive on Netflix, Highly recommend it. Um, basically, Netflix follow around um, the teams throughout the year. So you get a really good insight into what goes on in a Formula One team, the drivers, and that they are just humans. So whether you like sport or not, it's a really good watch. Um, why that's significant is Bernie Eccleston, who's the former boss of uh, F1s, was very private. And when I say private, it's probably the wrong way to describe it. But if anyone wanted anything in regards to F1, uh, from a content point of view, Bernie and the teams took a really big cut. Now, Bernie, Bernie's reign finished in 2017, and since then, Formula One has opened back up, with the biggest impact being um, Drive to Survive. So Drive to Survive has exposed a lot more people to Formula One, particularly in the US. And there was a recent race in uh, Texas in the US, which is the Texas, uh, the USGP, and they had 140,000 uh, people to that GP. Now, there's generally not, well, America doesn't have a great driver. Um, it's generally a European thing and you, know, you get the odd Aussie in there. So um, opening, it up, opening it up to, to Netflix has boosted the F1 fan base more than ever in the, in, in the last 12 to 24 months. So where I want to dive into this is just around the money. So the issue at the moment is you've got two teams that dominate. You've got Mercedes and Red Bull. The reason they dominate is because they've got the biggest budgets. 
Everyone knows who Mercedes are. Everyone knows who Red Bulls are. Uh, Red Bull is, and they absolutely dominate. And then it's a battle. It's the best of the rest. So just to put this into perspective for you, the Mercedes F1 team employs more than a thousand people, and last year they spent six hundred million dollars to win the championship. So that's just their F1 team. Um, what's and actually, I'll, I'll I'll just give you a couple of other stats. So. What's happening now is the as of next year, there will be a cap on how much each team can actually spend on their F1 team. Now, this cap excludes drivers and senior management. And why this is important, because you've got other teams such as McLaren, anyone who knows Daniel Ricciardo, Daniel Ricciardo drives for McLaren. Uh, last year, they spent $269 million on their F1 team. The Williams team, which is probably the lowest team, spent 129 million. So you've got Mercedes spending 600, uh, McLaren spending um, 269, and Williams spending 129 million. So you can see why there's such a discrepancy, and the likes of Mercedes and Red Bull absolutely dominate. What's happening next year, and this is really good for the Aussie people, is there's a cap at 145 million for every team. So there's, there's a few um, changes that are coming in with the cars that are going to even things up. But the biggest one is each group or each team will only have $145 million to spend, which is going to make a significant difference in bringing things back um, closer. And hopefully Daniel Ricciardo has a, has a really good year. But just some more numbers just to put this into perspective because, again, I've always just been fascinated about the money, where does it go, who pays for it, what's the value. So the Mercedes F1 team last year, even though they spent $600 million, they actually made a $19 million profit, just the F1 team. Um, it was traditionally higher than that. It was a little bit down last year because of COVID. They had less races. Now, where does that money come from? It comes from sponsors. So you think you've got Mercedes, uh, Lewis Hamilton always up the front. You get a lot of TV time, which means you get a lot of sponsorship. So I was actually fascinated to think that they actually turned a profit because I always thought it must be a lost leader for Mercedes, for the brand, uh, to sell their cars, but not the case. The F1 team alone made $19 million last year. Um, the Mercedes F1 team is worth around $1.2 billion. So when you have an F1 team, it's either owned uh, by a manufacturer or a business like Red Bull or it's privately owned. So a lot of these lower teams actually have private equity and private investors involved. Um, a lot of rich, um, rich people will buy the teams and then put someone uh, in their local country into the seat. So the Mercedes F1 team was worth, uh, is worth just over a billion dollars. How's this for a stat? So Mercedes has been dominating the last two years and winning championships. Last year, the overall Mercedes brand went from a value of $32 billion to $50 billion with the main contributor, they're saying, being the F1 team. So you start to get an understanding of why they put so much money into these teams. Um, just another stat, Rolex is a big F1 sponsor. They spend $45 million a year to sponsor Formula One. So, yeah, bit of a different spin on reading the play, but big F1 fan, I actually love it. I, I love watching it, and I think... The, the Netflix doco has made a lot more people interested. They now mm. start to understand what's, what goes on, what's all the jargon. But the numbers that float around are just unbelievable. And I'd suggest there's probably not a sport with that, with that sort of money floating around. So It's pretty incredible, isn't it? And uh, something I hadn't thought about either, where the money comes from and, and whether they could be profitable. Definitely thought they were lost leaders. Um, but uh, very interesting. Nick, Marty, you, you're into the F1s? Not really, but I'm fascinated now because of the numbers <laughs> around it. But I just, for me, what was fascinating in bringing that salary cap in or that cap, mm. because again, that, that brings it back to a level playing field, but those brands are still strong. So no doubt from sponsorship money, they'll still be, you know, they'll still be reaping the rewards from just the strength of the brand. But I like the idea of the cap because now you're it's apples with apples so it's going to be fascinating to see how the results are adjusted if if any so that to me sounds like a level playing field but no doubt the leverage it's like football there are stronger brands 
just in the market that uh, generate more money and more sponsorship money. So you mean you mean you, you don't know how the salary cap's working for Gold Coast? Is that is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly right. I think they're worth about two hundred thousand at the moment. But, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's just that was that was actually really interesting. Nick, I was sitting here just taking it, and it actually has given me a new appreciation of the business of racing. Uh, which uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Jace, what have you got for us? Yeah, I might I might take it back to a to a really exciting, really pumped up uh, section based on uh, unpaid superannuation. So don't Ooh. leave us yet. Yeah, it's um something that grinds my gears as a, as a business advisor and someone you know working with around the ATO and superannuation and all this kind of stuff. And and you guys probably see it a bit on the wealth side of the Innovate business, but. Um, I read an article on uh, ABC News around how much unpaid super there has been over the last couple of years, and effectively, it's it's a growing crisis to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. And basically, you know, the article goes on to say Australian workers are being ripped off by their bosses. Now, over the just to use one year as an example, in the eighteen nineteen financial year, there was five billion dollars worth of super that did not get paid into working Australian super funds, um, and it affects one in four people. So you know, think about your family, your friends. Um, you know, there's four of us here right now. Unpaid super may have affected one of the four of us sitting here in this room. Now, th- flowing those numbers out, you know across everyone, the effect that that has, I mean, we know that at the age of 20, if you missed out on five or $10,000 into your super fund, that's over $100,000 worth of super when you retire. So it's not, you know, it's not just, oh, well, missed out on a couple of grand when I was younger. I think the important thing that I wanted to share is that it's super, super important, pardon the pun, to make sure your superannuation is being paid. And, you know, our listeners are of all ages and all demographics and business owners or employees. The message to the business owners, superannuation should be one of the first things you pay. Like, and, and block your ears, ATO, before you pay GST, before you pay your tax, before you pay pay as you go withholding, superannuation is your employee's money. If you do not pay your employee's money, you are stealing from your employee. Um, that's how I look at it. To get into a few more of the stats, because we're here for the numbers and not my rambling about how it grinds my gears, probably start talking about payroll tax soon. Um, the unpaid area for super, the, the industries where unpaid super is the most common is accommodation and food services, so cafes, restaurants. Um, second to that is construction, which makes a lot of sense because, I mean, there's all these kind of sham contracts where, you know, people who own construction businesses put people onto subcontractor agreements and uh, try not to pay them super. And then behind that is retail. So if you're in retail, construction or food and accommodation, have a look at your super fund. To use a real-life story, um, if I may, of, of how this could really affect your life, um, I'll get the guy's name just to make it, uh, where is it? I've lost it. Mr. Hislop. Now, Greg Hislop uh, was in his 50s, and he developed um, like a, a bacteria in his foot, um, you know, whether it was from work or whatnot, doesn't matter. But he ended up having to have his leg amputated which is devastating. And, you know, at 50 years old, the job that he was doing, he had his leg amputated and he turned to his super fund to be able to claim his TPD insurance or total permanent disability. Nick might be able to kind of share some light on this after. And because his employer had not been paying superannuation in, the super fund had cancelled his insurance policies. So he had no insurance to claim. He'd just had his leg cut off at, and and his life was changing forever. And because his employer didn't pay superannuation in, his insurances were cancelled. So that's a real life example of just how devastating it can be to not pay superannuation and to not pay it on time. Um, and that's how, that's, you know, that's my message is check your super fund balances if you're an employee, if you're an employee, if you're an employer and a business owner, make sure super is the first thing you pay. If you're behind on super, get it sorted. You know, you can do, you can put your hand up and say to the ATO, I stuffed up, put it on a payment plan, lodge the super guarantee charge statements. But uh, this is my message to you, get it sorted. Um, It's not going away, it compounds and gets worse. And if you are overdue in paying super, it's a 200% penalty of the balance of what you owe. So if you owe 30 grand in super, you're looking at up to a $60,000 fine or penalty, and then you got to pay the $30,000 super as well. So your $30,000 of super overdue for your bunch of employees may end up being $90,000 out of your pocket. 
and it follows you forever. You may think, you know, oh, well, the business didn't work. I'll, I'll, I can liquidate and shut the business down. But superannuation debt will follow the director personally uh, ongoing. Um, yeah, sorry guys, kind of took it on a real uh, negative spiral there. But uh, Nick, what's you've you've seen any experience around that, or you, you that that's true about insurances getting cancelled if you're not putting yeah. money in super? And look, it was a dead set, you know, for lack of a better word, balls up. I think by um, the the regulators when they they brought in a policy that suggested that said that if your super was inactive for a certain period of time, inactive being no contributions made um, to the fund, then any insurance that was held in there was cancelled and there was cut off dates and, and whatnot. Now, the underlying reason they did that, which I kind of agree with, but they just went about it the wrong way. They didn't think about the logistics. The underlying reason they did that is because they didn't want people to have multiple super funds because when you go into industry, industry funds, you off, often get a default level of cover. People don't know that they've got it or that they're paying for it. So you might have someone that switched jobs that has three or four super funds with three or four insurance premiums that they don't know about. So Basically, if you weren't contributing into that fund over a certain period of time by a cutoff date, then that insurance was cancelled. Now, that sounds great, but the problem is a lot of people have either moved address, not updated their address, uh, their address with the super fund. So we had a lot of people that were at risk of losing insurance because the fund, no, the fund wasn't active and they had another uh, fund they were using, but they kept that fund for that insurance. And because there was a wrong address or whatnot, that they they didn't get the notification that you had to opt in to keep the insurance. So that 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 was yeah. what you had to do. So it was a really poorly handled. Um, and there was a lot of people that lost insurance that number one didn't know they had it and would have opted in if they had got received the notification. Um, and number two would have maybe made that fund active again. So yeah, so I I understand that. The the thing that I would say to people in some of the confusions that we the, the confusion we see is just because it's on your pay slip doesn't mean it's been paid. Mm. So a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, my super's been paid. And the other thing is just because it's on your pay slip every week doesn't mean it's paid weekly. Mm. I think your employee's got three months. So, look, it's really easy now whether you're with an advisor. Look, when, when we have our annual reviews with our clients, one of the things we look at is what are the contributions for the last 12 months and is that in line with your income? But if you're not with an advisor – uh, whether you're with an industry fund, it's easy to get online. You can easily download a transaction history and you can see the contributions going in or not. So pretty easy to jump online and check it out yourself these days. Don't wait for that annual statement. Um, get yourself a login and have a look. Mate, Marty, to uh, pep us back up a little bit after I've taken it down a notch and uh, made it a little bit depressing and doom and gloom, what have you got for us before we uh, throw to... Uh our special guest. Oh, sorry, Jace. I'm just checking my super statement. All is good, guys. <laughs> All is good. Um, great, great uh, topics this morning. I'm going to talk about small business owners again, and you know I love a great Aussie entrepreneurial story. And again, it epitomizes the power of one idea. Uh, and I want to talk uh, about Jack Tanasi, who created Frenchie Wear in June 2020, a 23-year-old uni dropout has made $1.9 million, uh, from lockdown sleepwear idea. And it's uh, the idea is actually the mixture between a hoodie and a dressing gown. Uh, it's called the Frenchie, which uh, meant something else in the 80s back when I was a boy. But uh, I, I'm really, really happy with this idea. He bootstrapped himself and he worked four jobs to create $18,000 so he could invest into manufacturing um, the product in China, and he knew he was onto something because he generated sixty nine thousand in his first month on one single idea. And I think COVID uh, helped with that. Obviously, people wanted a bit of comfort around the house. Uh, he generated three hundred eighty seven thousand dollars in July two thousand and twenty one, which was his best year. He uh, stored the stock in his grandparents' garage. He worked from six a.m. to three a.m., which astronomical work ethic and now he's got products in Chadston and Westfield as well and he's now he's now diversified into socks masks and pillowcases as well so he's expanding the business but I love these stories because it epitomizes everything we talk about in business he didn't go and borrow funds he actually went out there and worked for jobs to create 
cash flow so he could invest into his idea. So I love that. I love that hustle and I love that work ethic around it. He put in the time because he believed in his product. He had an idea that got traction and he scaled and leveraged it. So he kept it simple. He could see it was working and he just kept putting more fuel under it. And obviously, the uh, I don't know the profit margins. So as long as the 1.9 million is showing some profit, Jack, uh, you're doing well. Give us a call. We'll make sure that we'll, uh, we'll sort you out there. And make sure you pay your super, Jack, for goodness sake as well. Um, I know you're doing well. But I love this type of entrepreneurial spirit and flair. I love the fact that he got it spinning well and now he's diversifying and now he's now going to that 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 quality level of getting into the Chadstons and Westfield. So um and he used the grandparents garage to store it. Now he has a factory warehouse, but he he's invested in that now that the money's there and the business is booming. So well done Jack, we love to hear Aussie great stories and people putting in the effort to make something happen out of nothing, which uh, I love, boys. What did you think? I only learned what the Frenchie was about three months ago. Uh, I think I overheard some young staff talking about it. So, uh, <laughs> so it's that's a different huge. to the Frenchie that uh, my parents used to talk about. Uh, come on, give me a Frenchie, Dal. Like, is that that's it's not that, the same, that, is it? that was my era. It's a totally different product. This is a quality product. A this is not a go that. behind the shelter sheds type of product, Jason Robinson. But um, yes, I did see a bit of that in my time. <laughs> Not personally, just uh, watched on. <laughs> oh, well done. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, hello at thenumbersgamepodcast.com.au. All right, next up, before we crack into Marty's favourite segment of losing it, which he's probably a little bit upset today because we've got our special guest, uh, Casey Hogan, who's my partner in crime, a uh, super impressive trademark lawyer from one of the biggest law firms in the world. Um, welcome, Casey, to the show. How are you going? Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. It's uh, nice to have a guest on and, and who's going to be talking about something so valuable for our for our listeners to learn something new and different. I know, you know, a couple of years ago when, when we got together, trademarks was a bit of a, not completely foreign, but you've definitely broadened my horizon uh, onto what it's all about. But I did have one question for you before we get stuck into losing it. And I don't know if Marty and Nick want to say anything else, but I saw a lot of prep work went into today. I need to ask, did you put more prep work into this numbers game episode than you did for our wedding in two weeks? And what are you more excited about? <laughs> uh, definitely not. The wedding has been an ongoing saga for the last three years. Not that you'd know Jason because you haven't contributed all that much. <laughs> Anytime anyone asks Jason a question about the wedding, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, case is all over it. <laughs> He told me that he's been putting long hours in working on the wedding. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that special poem, Jason, uh, on the day. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that's been written yet. (laughs) Oh, come on, Marty. What are you doing? (laughs) Jason's very much a last-minute kind of guy. He needs the pressure of a deadline to really kick him into action. Well, someone that's so aggressive in the uh, finance market – needs a really good partner that knows their trademark. So, Casey, I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about what uh, what you have to share today. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. And, uh, yeah, sorry, as I said, Marty, uh, unfortunately for you today, your favourite segment is actually going to be covered by Case, and uh, it's an absolute doozy of a lesson to learn in losing it, which will throw us to our learning about trademarks before we dive into the one percenters to deep dive a little bit more. But, Case, uh Tell us about losing it. What have you brought to the show today? So there was a recent decision in the federal court around trademarks, and I thought this would be a great one for losing it. Um, It's a lesson of exactly what not to do when it comes to naming your business and setting up your business. So the background is uh, it's a case between Henley Arch and Henley Constructions. Now, Henley Arch is Henley Homes. Everyone everyone knows Henley Homes. Uh, Established in 1989 in Victoria, and it quickly expanded to become a multi-state business in mid-1990 and quickly went on to become one of the largest contract home builders in Australia. In late 2000, Henley experienced some quality control issues in New South Wales, but still maintained a presence there and built a small number of homes, uh, but was bigger in the other states. Then Henley Constructions was founded by Patrick Sarkis, came along in 2006 and he was a developer that built low-rise residential unit blocks. And, um, yeah, he was a developer. 
Uh, essentially what happened is when setting up Henley Constructions, Patrick didn't conduct proper due diligence. So there's an expectation when you're setting up a business that you conduct effective due diligence and that's, you know, checking whether there's any registered trademarks in your area, which we'll go into a bit more about trademarks later and, um, you know, what to do, what not to do. Uh, but essentially when Patrick set up the business, he didn't do a trademark search. He simply registered an ASIC business name and company name because his accountant had told him that Henley Constructions was available. So hot tip, don't trust your accountant when it comes to trademarks. Go see an expert. <laughs> hey, hey. Stone, stone. <laughs> Patrick, Patrick, Patrick. So, yeah, um, Patrick had grand plans to become Australia's largest builder under the Henley Constructions brand, but he didn't do any research into his competitors at all. Case question. Yes. <laughs> Do you think Patrick had a underlying motivation uh, motive? <laughs> look, he look he could have. He could have. You'd think that people would do a quick Google search. I mean, Henley's pretty big, um, and certainly at the time they had a massive presence around Australia. Uh, in the case, you know, there's it's it's very long judgment. Um, there was a lot of facts involved, but there was um, the court did find that uh, Hem- uh, Patrick's wife had Googled. Henley and said, oh, there's this henley.com.au, but I think it was a bit of blind ignorance. He just proceeded anyway. So I'm just trying to find the link between Patrick and Henley. Middle name? No, no. He just he, he came up with a bunch of names and got his friends to vote on what they thought was the best. Oh, he so that's oh, how that he said it on Henley. <laughs> uh, Porter Davis, Henley, Simmons, Metricon. Which ones do you think are the best? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so in April 2017, which, you know, it's 11 years after Henley Construction set up, uh, Henley Homes cottoned on to the existence of Henley Constructions and sent a letter of demand um, putting them on notice that uh, there was a potential trademark infringement. Uh, these letters usually deter people from in continuing infringing behaviour, but in this instance, uh, Patrick actually went harder with his use of Henley because he... It was like he wanted to uh, to win and become the biggest Henley in Australia. So mm. uh, the court didn't take too kindly to that. Um, essentially, uh, Henley brought an ac- action for infringement in the federal court against Sarkis and Henley Constructions. Um, and there was a few other sort of allegations thrown around and cross claims. But Henley Homes won. Uh, they, they were uh, – Henley Constructions was found to be liable for trademark infringement um, and the court really didn't take too kindly to his reckless indifference and uh, terrible behaviour, uh, especially after receiving the letter, um, mm. because he just continued with that infringing behaviour. But that's such a that's such an interesting area, Casey. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, I I remember starting my first business, mortgage first, and my intention was always to have mortgage in the name because I knew that would you know that would get traction in the market. But it was amazing how many clients actually thought we were mortgage choice. And as a as a young business owner, I would never even thought of trademarking it or that there was that could be a potential problem because of the fact that the name wasn't taking. I, I was I was more looking at, okay, what are the company names available? But I could I can guarantee you that was the thought process in the market. I realized that a year in and going, Oh, this is yeah, this is working for me. But at no stage did I ever think that could be a problem, you know. It's um, so it's interesting you're bringing this up. Yeah, and that's the thing. I guess the lesson here is you've got to check your brand first. So doing proper due diligence, engage a trademark professional. Um, there's trademark attorneys or trademark lawyers. There's plenty of them. It is a small investment, but it pays off in the long run, and it's something that you've got to get right, you know, up front. Uh, before you settle on a brand name, even before you go to a lawyer, you can do a Google, you can do a trademark search. Uh, it's publicly available. It's free. The IP Australia's trademark search tool is great. It's very user-friendly um, and anyone can use it. Uh, yeah, doing a Google search as well because you need to make sure that there's no one, there might be someone who's using a particular trademark and has used it for a long time without registering. So just doing all those checks before you settle on a brand name, before you spend money on graphic design for your logo, before you go and get business cards, before you register your domain name, check that your trademark's available first. It's really important. What, what are we talking the cost here to Patrick? Is he potentially up for millions of dollars in damages and a rebrand uh, for his uh, exercise of ac- accidentally not checking his brand name? Yeah, so the cost award is yet to be decided, but uh, certainly in these types of cases, um, there's damages awarded. Uh, that's because of loss of reputation and goodwill. 
Uh, there's also an account of profits. So Patrick could lose some of his profits because it could be found, it could be held that, you know, uh, people were directing their work to him instead of Henley Holmes. Uh, so it's just not worth it. You've just got to get it right from the start. How much comes down to legalities as opposed to intention as well? Because, like, it sounds like he, he sort of utilised that to advantage and even when he got the order to stop using the brand, he went harder. So it's there's obviously there's a bit of a character flaw there as well. In, <laughs> yeah. in uh, when you get served your papers, you keep uh, you try to go to the next level, which is crazy. But w- like in regards to if someone is operating in the market and not having any understanding that they are infringing, is there any protection for that person, or is there not too bad? You didn't do the right thing up front, and you're uh, you're now going to be up for could be not only damages, but you have to rechange your old brand. I mean, it's a very costly exercise for business owners. Look, there are some sort of protections for good faith use, but unfortunately it's just not applicable when uh, you haven't done your due diligence. There is that expectation that you do do your due diligence, you do your trademark checks, you know, before you register your business name as well. Um, yeah, you do common law searches to see if there's any prior rights and unfortunately ignorance just isn't an excuse. That's great advice. A lot of business owners wouldn't even think about doing that up front. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, hello at thenumbersgamepodcast.com.au. All right, let's go into the one percenter. Since I've lost losing it, I'm going to take over the one percenters here and then hand it over to Casey to bring it home. One uh, percenters is about just extracting the gold of getting getting some advice that really could make a difference out there to our audience and business owners. And I'm going to start with a really basic question. Uh, Casey, what is a trademark? What is actually a trademark? Give us a background. So the legal definition is that a trademark is a sign used or intended to be used to distinguish goods or services dealt with or provided in the course of trade by a person from goods or services dealt with or provided by any other person. But essentially, it's it's your brand. So in most instances, a business's trademark is its house brand. Um, but it could also be a sub-brand or a product or a slogan that it associates with its business. So, for example, McDonald's, house brand trademark, Big Mac, product trademark, and then I'm loving it. That's a, a protected trademark for one of their famous slogans. So, yeah, it's essentially uh, something that people identify in trade as belonging to you. It's, it's that connection. Yeah, it's really good. I like that you mentioned there. It's not just the name because um, we've just registered a, a trademark of something that we've created, um, which isn't our business name, it's something else. And up until six months ago, I had no idea that you could actually do that. So I'm glad you mentioned that, that it's not just the business name, it's it's branding really and, and anything else within your brand. Yeah, that's right. And a registered trademark uh, in particular uh, provides you with exclusive rights to use, license and sell that mark. It's an immediately enforceable right against other people who are infringing. Uh, so it is really important to register your trademark and also to conduct those searches to see if there's anyone else with a similar mark uh, in the same sort of area that you're providing yours in. Okay, you actually probably are good to talk about a bit of a personal story. You, uh, you tried to register some trademarks and, uh, you know, what was your experience like learning how to do that? I guess just, just you know, from going from what is a trademark to what is actually trying to register a trademark like as a business mm. owner, and then we'll throw back to cases mm. to why it's important to maybe use a professional and, and what it's like on her end um, from a process. Uh, well, look, it's a really quick story. So <laughs> there's not a great deal to tell outside. <laughs> we had no idea what we we're doing, so we handballed up the case. So, um, But just to elaborate a little bit, we, we actually didn't have the business trademark uh, a couple of years ago or a few years ago. We obviously had the name protected, but we didn't think about the branding in the business. And I think it was a conversation with you, Case, that, um, and then I, I got Geordie to look into it and he just looked into it and said, we, we need someone else to do this. We want to make sure. Well, the main thing is you want to make sure you get it right because if you get it wrong, then it's a complete waste of time. So I think anything uh, that holds that level of significance, you need to get a professional. And then second to that, as I mentioned before, is we've come up with a um, with a with a home line journey for first homeowners, and, and and we've named that uh, particular journey, and we push out material to first homeowners, and we've also trademarked that because we feel that look, that's really important. That's something we're going to push out via social media or whatever it is, and we want people to attach our brand 
um, to that program. So, yeah, for us it was it's just it just it wasn't so much about this is really difficult, although I'm sure it was. It's more about it's so significant you need to make sure you're getting it right. Um, my question to, to to Casey just on that would be how, who would usually tell you about this? So if you're a if you're a small business owner going into your small business and you're setting it up. Is this something you'd expect your accountant to bring up? Because I know a lot of people don't, and Jace, you'd probably be able to answer this as well. A lot of people don't think about getting a a, league, a solicitor on their side when they set a business up. So is this something you would hope your accountant would mention when you go to your accountant, which is generally the first point of call and say, hey, I want, I want to set a business up, or the people just need to really expect their accountant, their accountant isn't going to do that for them and to make sure that they choose a solicitor uh, when they set up as well. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It, it just depends on the accountant, really, and and what advice they provide. Any good business advisor should tell you that it's really important. As I said, it's something you need to get right from the start. Uh, you know, even before you res- register your company name, if that's the name you want to trade under, you need to make sure it's available. It's not just about enforcing against uh, other third parties, which obviously is important because you do want to stop other people trading in something similar to the extent that people could get confused. But it's really, really important at the start to make sure you're not infringing on anyone else's. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a trademark lawyer and anyone can file a trademark. But as you said, Nick, it's really important to get it right. Um, you know, it's quite a niche kind of area. There's, it's A trademark isn't a total monopoly over a brand name or a logo for anything in the world. There's a defined list of classes that pertain to goods and services. So when you file your trademark, you need to nominate which goods and services you want to cover and you need to make sure that you include a broad enough scope to be able to expand because trademarks last for 10 years. Uh, So you want to try and include anything that you think you might need to cover in the next 10 years reasonably. Obviously, you don't want to, you can't cover everything, but it's just one of those things that unless you know a lot about it, it's it's quite a tricky area to navigate um, uneducated. But there is a lot of information out there, like IP, IP Australia have a great website that has a lot of information on trademarks, so that's a really good place to start. Um, and yeah, as I said, anyone can search the register, the tool's amazing, there's lots of different filters that you can search, um, and it's, yeah, super user-friendly. And to be honest, Nick, you know, on the accountant thing, I, I definitely think it's something that goes under-advised, um, and I think I probably talk about it a lot because of, you know, having case at home and, you know, especially even working together over the last two years stuck in the same place. Like there's a lot of talk (laughs) about trademarks and brand protection and that becomes part of my natural conversation with business owners is that we throw that out there. And even then the adoption of business owners to actually go and get a trademark, I think a lot of them don't understand why it's so valuable. But to also throw back my first five years as as an accountant out of the 10, I don't think I ever heard anyone mention a trademark and that's from the business owners that I was, or the businesses I was working for, the accounting seminars I'd go to. It is just really, really under publicized in the accounting mm-hmm. industry as part of advisory when setting up a company or setting up a brand. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, going forward, I'd love the message to be spread out there of how important, you know, registering your trademark is. So I guess to throw out the case, what, why is registering a trademark so important? And what are the basics? I think you touched on classes, but to go into a little bit more detail of why it's important to register a trademark and what happens if you don't, and then what are some of the basics we should know? Yeah, so as I said before, registered trademark, it provides you with exclusive rights to use, license, and sell a trademark. Um, it gives you a defense to infringement. If you've got a registered trademark, that's a pretty significant defense to infringement. You've been through all the checks and balances. Um, it's enforceable against third parties. So Australia is actually a first to use jurisdiction. So it's not that if you don't register a trademark, you have no rights in a brand, but it's if you don't register, uh, then you have to prove your rights. You have to prove, you'd have to provide evidence of use to be able to then enforce, enforce it against other parties or, you know, use your use as a defense uh, to an allegation of infringement. So it, having that registered protection, it, it puts everyone on notice because, as I said, there's that expectation that people will do a trademark register search before they decide on a brand. So if your trademark's on the register, it's a pretty clear notice to someone that, you know, that mark is in use. Um, it's not always the case that, uh, you know, there might be people that register a trademark and then they never use it. So you do have to use it. Um, pretty much there's a, a three-year period that you've got to use it in to be able to maintain that trademark. But 
yeah, it's just it's one of those things. It's important to get it right from the start and to be able to check that you're not infringing on anyone else's. That's a you know the most important thing at the outset. I think when you're starting a new a new business, figuring out your brand name or figuring out what you want to protect, whether it's your brand or um, things you're offering, like so, like home loan healthy. I think it is Nick um, or something yes. along those lines. So once you figured that out, what's so then figuring out where you need protection? What what does that look like? So there's 45 different classes um, that you can you can get protection in. Uh, some are goods, some are services. So there is a defined list that IP Australia offer, and that's available to everyone. Um, but they're they're generally grouped in similar types of of goods and services. So for example, Class 30 has like coffee and bakery goods. Uh, class 25 is clothing, footwear, headgear. Uh, class 36 is your financial, professional sort of business services. Uh, and class 45 is your legal services. So, I mean, even just navigating the classes is reason enough to get a professional on board because, yeah, you just don't know what you don't know. I've watched, I've watched you go through a bajillion things inside each class and just my head wants to explode. So I'm glad it's you and not me, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I, think, I think you've said it well, Casey, because like I think about like what Jason said, I you know was in business for 13 years and never heard about a trademark. Mm. And it was really well explained to me you know, in, in simple language to say, well, you are protecting your brand and you're protecting your market and the relationship between the market and your brand. And it wasn't until I heard that that I go, actually, I should be looking into this. It's um, it's ridiculous that I'm not. And I just hadn't heard about it. It was quite remarkable to go that long with, and I'd heard of trademarks, but I thought, oh, it's something big companies do. You know, it's massive companies do trademarks and patents and all that type of stuff. Uh, it's not for the little business owner, but you realize how vital it actually is. Yeah, it is. And I mean, at, I work at Herbert Smith Freehills, which is a really large commercial law firm. Um, but we've got a range of clients, you know, we, we work for massive international corporations that have a whole heap of trademarks. And then, you know, I've got a client that's a restaurant in Queensland with one trademark for the name of mm. his restaurant. Um, but it's important for everyone to get across. And, you know, even the little guys, there's, you know, there's plenty of issues that have come up. And unfortunately, a lot of the clients come to us without a trademark registration when they've got a problem. And they always say to me, oh, I should, we should have just got this right at the start. We should have done this at the start. We should have registered our trademark because once you encounter an issue, it becomes so much harder to resolve it if you then have to prove any use rights and, and maybe, maybe you don't have significant enough rights to, you know, to trump the other party that's alleging infringement or, or prevent another party who's infringing you. Um, it's just it's not a problem you want to have. If, if you get it right from the start, then it's really worth the peace of mind. C- Casey, have you seen someone that's had an amazing win because of their trademark? Uh, have you come across that at all where someone has trademarked, done the right thing and had a massive win because of it in yeah. any sort of circumstance? Yeah, it does happen. Um, we've, we've had some cases where uh, because our clients are so good at protecting their trademark, they've been able to block, you know, third-party infringers that aren't even necessarily directly infringing on the trademark, you know, the trademark per se, but they, they've shown a pattern of conduct uh, where they started really similar to this person's trademark and then they kind of evolved the trademark um, you know, so it's not all it's not all that similar to the initial trademark, but it's the pattern of conduct that shows that there is this passing off kind of behavior, you know, trying to pass themselves off through a progression of a brand. So that's a huge win because it's not an easy case to win. Um, but by having that registered protection and by enforcing it appropriately and and monitoring the market, it's really important to monitor. It's not as simple as just having a trademark registered. You've got to monitor what's going on in the market and and, you know, cottoning on to any potential infringers and taking action because if you let it go on, if you just ignore it, uh, there's some provisions in the Act for honest concurrent use. So if someone else uses their mark alongside yours for long enough to the point where there's no confusion, they may be able to actually maintain that mark and then you may have a real problem. What's the craziest thing you've seen trademarked? <laughs> I see a few um, a few interesting ones. We do some trademark like monitoring searches for some of our clients Um and I mean, our clients' trademarks are fantastic, but I've seen, um, you know, because they've done the right thing and gotten a professional to help them out. But I've seen, you know, a word trademark that says 
a picture of a heart with X, Y, Z words in it. And that's what they've trademarked. Like they've trademarked that sentence and obviously they want the image, um, but it just hasn't worked <laughs> out for them because they've tried to do it themselves. Uh, well, that's, that's actually a really good segue into another question that I had. But if you are going to see a professional um, to make sure you get it right and get your trademark right and not just the theory, what are we looking at cost-wise? Yeah, so costs are pretty dependent um, based on the amount of classes. So there's an official IP Australia fee. IP Australia is a government body uh, that that, uh, regulates trademarks. Um, So there's a specific fee per class. So depending on the number of classes that there are, the the cost will increase. Um, And generally trademark professionals will charge a fixed fee per class and, you know, the first class might be a little bit higher and then the costs reduce for, you know, second, third, and then usually there's some sort of cap, you know, if someone's going to trademark 10 classes, they'll have to pay that official fee for 10 classes, but a lot of trademark professionals will cap it at a certain point um, in terms of professional fees, so then it's just the official fees that increase. Um, there's a pick list, uh, which has 60,000 entries. Um, it's a pre-approved list by IP Australia, so it's if you choose that option, it's $250 per class, the official fee. Um, and the reason it's it's cheaper is because this is an automated process. It uh, doesn't require an assessment of the suitability of the claim in that class. It just automatically goes through because you pick it from a drop down. Um, but then there's the free form specification. So if you find that the pick list doesn't quite cater to your needs, you might want to draft your own specification to really hone in on what the services or the goods that you want to provide. You can draft your own and that's $400 per class, but then that will be manually assessed by an examiner just to make sure that it fits within the scope of the class that you're claiming. So as a, as a rough idea then to, to, I'm a business owner, I want to trademark my name and my logo. Mm-hmm. What am I looking at? And let's just say two, two classes or one. Yeah. So, so one class, one class, we're talking about 1500 bucks, about $1,500. Yeah. That's for your professional fees for filing and registration and then your official fees for your class fees. Um, and then any, from one class onwards, it's, you know, you probably add maybe between 500 and $1,000 per additional class. So it's really accessible. I mean, look, I'm not to say $1,500 isn't a lot, but when you're going to start a business and build a brand, it's, it's actually accessible for a small business owner or anyone to actually come and see a lawyer and, and to get that kind of help and assistance, or they do it themselves, potentially stuff it up, but better than nothing to have mm. some kind of protection. So couple of hundred dollars up to a couple of grand and and you're on your way to having a, a bit of protection or a lot of protection. Yeah. It's a small upfront investment, but it, it pays off in the long run. And as I said, once you've got that trademark registration, you're protected for 10 years, then you've got to renew it every 10 years. Um, so, you know, if you're not using the mark anymore, you know, there's no more ongoing costs by that point. Or if you are, it's a couple of hundred dollars, maybe, maybe you know, um, on average, about $1,000 to renew it for one class for another 10 years. I'm glad you mentioned that. Do these things last forever or is it – because I'm thinking, like, say you've got someone who started a business, trademarked, then fell out of business two or three years later. Does that trademark still exist or would the new business then say, well, look, that business – the trademark's still there, but the business actually started operating three years ago. Mm. How does that work? Is it something that – as a business owner, well, you've answered the question every 10 years, but mm. let's say as a business owner who wants to check out a trademark for a business that doesn't operate anymore, but the trademark's still there, how mm. does that work? Yeah, so the mark will stay on the register um, for that 10 years unless either a party voluntarily cancels their registration so they can withdraw their registration. That's just by filing a form with IP Australia. A lot of people don't do that. You know, they get a bit lazy, they'll just leave it there and then they won't renew it. Um, but if you come across a trademark that hasn't been in use, you know, ever, or certainly not in the last three years, there are options where any third party can apply to cancel a trademark to remove it from the register. And, you know, if the trademark owner doesn't respond to that cancellation request, it'll be removed within about two months. Uh, if they do respond, then there's sort of an evidence and hearing process um, that sort of goes on from there. Um, but I mean, it happens all the time. Well, you know, as a trademark lawyer, we'll have trademarks that come up as a block to our clients' applications in examination. And if we know that the trademark hasn't been used, we might send the person a letter and, you know, try and negotiate. Or otherwise, we might just file an action to remove it and see how they respond. 
My uh, question, something that we talk about a lot on the show is beginning with the end in mind. So I've got a business owner that rocks up and he's talking about taking over the world. So as opposed to just getting protection in Australia and, and making sure their brand's protected here, how much does that process change that if I said, look, I'm starting in Australia, but I want to be able to trade in the US, UK, New Zealand, the rest of the world? Um, yeah, what, what's that process change? What does it look like? And, and how much more in depth or detail does that become to have protection around the world rather than just in Australia? Yeah, so there is an international trademark system uh, that you can use. It's best to, I mean, look, you can file a trademark uh, internationally by going to a lawyer in that jurisdiction. Uh, you have to brief them directly if you want to file a national application, but there is an international application system. It's under the Madrid protocol and managed by the World Intellectual Property Organization. So what you do is you'd start with your Australian trademark registration and it doesn't have to be registered, you know, at the point of at the application stage. You can then use that as a base for an international filing. So it's there's a little bit of an upfront cost in actually registering your international mark, which is then a base from which you can designate in any number of countries that are a party to the Madrid Protocol. Uh, so there are co some costs involved, but doing it that way is a lot cheaper than briefing a lawyer in every country that you, that you want to uh, trade in. It's best to do another search in those jurisdictions. So uh, certainly engage a lawyer just to make sure that, you know, if you're filing a mark, uh, you're not going to infringe on anyone else's or if you really intend to use it, it's best to get that advice. Um, but, yeah, the international system is is really good. It, it makes it so much more accessible for everyone. How do we get in touch with you, Casey? Is there a best way to get in contact if for our business owners and um, professionals that are seeking trademarks? Yeah, so we've got a trademarks team which spans over Melbourne and Sydney, but we service the whole of Australia and we've got clients all over Australia. So Herbert Smith Freehills, you can visit our website. Um, otherwise, you can shoot me an email, casey.hogan at hsf.com. Fantastic. This has been episode 34 of The Numbers Game, which I've loved and enjoyed Enjoyed because my dear and precious Queso has been here with us. Uh, guys, what's your key takeaways from today? Oh, for me, outsource. Don't do it alone. Um, I think it's so important, as I said earlier, that you just want to make sure you get it right. So it's, it's, yes, it's a cost and it's probably a significant cost, particularly when you're starting up a small business. But I think if you look at what it can cost you, 10 years down the road, if you don't get it right, um, yeah, outsource it, get a professional involved. Yeah, and I'll reiterate that defense is the best form of offense. Get it right in the beginning and it just doesn't leave you exposed. And you don't want to do the wrong thing in the market as well because uh, it's just going to cause headaches and cost money for everyone ultimately. So that's my takeaway, Jace. Yep, and uh, for myself, it's... Uh going to be spreading the word to the accounting industry uh, that we need to have this as part of our checklist. Uh, it needs to be a string in our bow to offer some form of business advisory around getting your trademark set up from day one and uh, want to spread the word so that more business owners know about what a trademark is uh, from the start. Thank you for that, Casey. Uh, I've learned a lot today. and No doubt our listeners would have learned a lot as well. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Game over. <laughs>